Thanks. Matt, awesome job on announcements. Except when it comes to the intro to Anthem, there's not like a full meal. Unless you can fill up on like pie and a meat and cheese tray, uh, don't expect a meal tonight at my house. But we would love to have you nonetheless. So uh, Matt said, my name's Stan Hayek. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, New Testament, book of Acts. Uh, we did this with the students when the college students were here. I believe in the, the spring we took a little break for the summer because we didn't want to take off without you college students. So now we're picking up. Some of you are like, I'm new. Well, we're halfway through. So Acts 13, to catch you up on what's happened, this is post-Jesus, uh, the resurrection. The resurrected Jesus comes, and, and he tells the disciples, hey, go to Jer Jerusalem. Uh, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And so he ascends to heaven. Now, Pentecost happens, Acts 2. I'm not going to go through all of it, but the, in the early church, there's a lot of miracles happening, a lot of boldness. They're meeting together, sharing meals, praying, teaching, but there's not a whole lot of going out. It's kind of like if you can imagine uh, summer camp, Christian summer camp. Anybody ever do that? Summer camp is amazing, right? The meals, like people will serve you, and you're like, this is great, and they're happy to be there, whereas sometimes in the home that might not be the case. Uh, but like there's just like this, there's this familial kind of thing. There's all the activities at summer camp. I don't know where you went to summer camp, but my, man, it was amazing. And then you're singing worship doing devos every morning, no responsibilities, God's presence is there. And then it comes to the end of the week, they're like, time to go home. You're like, mm -mm, no, why would I? This is amazing. Just send my mail here. Like, I want to just stay, right? And, and the early church, they kind of have this mentality. They're huddled up. There's not a whole lot of going. There's quite a bit of staying at this point. But then persecution is going to break out in, in that level of opposition, creates an opportunity for the, the church to go forth to the end of the earth. And, and some of us, if given the choice between like comfort, like camp versus going, in some camps, they were so like, you are now entering the mission field. You're like, really? Uh, given the choice between comfort or affliction, I don't know about you, but I'm going to lean comfort, right? And, and I think a lot of us would say, yeah, I would prefer to be comfortable, which is why 2020 has been such a bear cat. <laughs> You're just like, I did not sign up for this. And, and there's literally cities on fire right now. Liberty's being infringed upon. Sickness and death dominates the news. We still have an election to get through, right? Like 2020 has been, if the goal has been comfort, it has not been comfortable. And there's this pressing in on us. And so here's the thing, though. If what if the goal is not actually comfort? What if the goal is actually to take the opportunity to be salt and be light? And some of you, I would hold you in some regards responsible for 2020. And I mean this, some of you had the idea on New Year's to pray, dear God, would you please allow me to really make you known this year? I want to glorify your name. Some of you prayed that, didn't you? And I would say you're partly responsible for this because what an opportunity is this, given the level of opposition to glorify God, not just with our words, but interactions as we share in the suffering of Jesus. And so this might be exactly what you prayed for. You didn't know it at the time, but we're going to see in today's text that opposition is often a great opportunity for kingdom advancement. Opposition provides an opportunity. And so Acts chapter 13, let's dive in, verse 1, it says this. Now, there were, in, uh, there were in the church in Antioch prophets and teachers. 
Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manon, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So let's stop there. First thing you should note is this is a pretty diverse crew. We got a couple people from Africa that are there. Uh, there's Jews that are there, perhaps a Roman. And so there's diversity that's happening in this church, and they are dedicating themselves, this group of hodgepodge people, dedicating themselves to praying and fasting. Jesus taught them on the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a matter of if you fast, but when you fast, do it in this way. And so here we see them that they are fasting. They are fasting when the Holy Spirit calls them, which how much fun is that in a prayer meeting where God's like, hey, everybody, just want to clarify what I'm going to do here. And so they're praying and fasting at that point. And then they're, it's clear. And so they're like, God, would you, they continue praying and fasting even after the call has been made. In that fasting, if, if you're wondering what that looks like, it's the denying of your flesh, in this case, food. Say, God, more than I need food, we need you. And so you're, by fasting, inviting a level of opposition and trial in your life to allow us to draw closer to God. What is it say, man, this is, this is hard, but it's reminding me that I need God. And so you're inviting that in. And opposition there gives an opportunity to depend on God. And so some of you are saying, I don't know if I could skip a meal. I don't know, it's, it sounds pretty hard. That's pretty common for the rest of the world, but Americans, it's like breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, other snack. Like, we don't tend to miss a whole lot of meals. And so what I, from this, fasting, again, it's not the main point, but it supports it that this learning from a self-imposed trial, that's what it is. And even if you can call the trial missing a meal, but learning from a self-imposed trial in order to commune with God. It's good preparation for when real trials actually come that are, are impressed upon us. And so we already have the practice of telling our flesh, no, I don't listen to you. I follow the Spirit. I listen to God. And so I, and with this, is, is I don't think we can be really good at fasting and still be anxious people. I don't think we can be really great at fasting and prayer and lack self-control. These things are what fasting brings about in us as we learn to tell our flesh no and say yes to the Spirit. It begins to permeate all of our life, and we see that they are doing this here early on as they're getting ready to embark on the first missionary journey. They are fasting and say, God, we need you. And not only are they fasting for clarity, God gives them clarity and they keep fasting and they keep praying. Saying that we not only need you for clarity, we now need you for strength. And so everything they're doing is just, just bathed in prayer and fasting. I would just say it like this, by way of application, if you have not spent a day in prayer and fasting in the last few months, I would encourage you to consider a fast. Unless you have some sort of health complications that would prevent that, I would encourage you to spend time praying and fasting a dependency upon the Lord. Even as I'm like wrestling with this sermon myself, the last service God hit me as I'm like responding in worship, and sorry this isn't fully baked out, but 
But it's like, Stan, are you living your life in such a way where you don't need God? You don't need dependence. Why would you need to pray and fast when you're just tackling things in a day that you could do in and of your own strength? Just the conviction that it's like, I want to be in over my head in obedience to God where it's like, Lord, I need clarity and I need strength. And so pray and fast. They had no other option. They were depending upon the Lord for what they were about to do. And the Holy Spirit said, set apart Saul and Barnabas. Now you have to understand from previous context in Acts, these two knew each other. Saul gets converted on the road to Damascus as he's walked 300 miles to kill Christians. God does something miraculous, and then he goes, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. That's where the disciples are at. I'm going to go hang out with the boys and learn a little bit more, and we're going to commune together. And then he's starting to go to Jerusalem, and the disciples hear of this like, -uh." (laughs) nah, like, this is a trick. You kill Christians. Like trying to be all sneaky, saying you're one of us. And so they're like, nope, can't come in. To which Barnabas, Barnabas like goes over and he's like, you're with me. And he's like, he's with me. He's good. I cleared him. And so Barnabas goes. He's the one that gets Saul and brings him to the disciples. Like, well, I guess God did do a work in you. And so then they're, they're all good. But, but Barnabas, they have a relationship. And now God is calling them on this, this first missionary journey. And they're, here's the thing. They get commissioned by this prayer team. But God called them, and God's also the one that's going to send them out. Verse 4, so being sent out by who? The Holy Spirit. Being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now here's the question. I need an audible response. If God has called them, we would naturally assume that the journey should go go well. (laughs) Some of you... Proper English, well. I mean, like, good. It's going to go good, right? <laughs> We're on the same team. Same idea. Like, we would naturally assume that if God's hand is on these things, that it should go well. Because the, the thinking behind that is, well, God is good, so if it's good, it's of God. And God, you know, because of that, if it's bad, it's not of God. It's not his will. Which, a couple things in that. One, it wrongly assumes that Satan is capable, it assumes that Satan is incapable of putting us on a peaceful road straight to hell. And it also wrongly assumes that opposition and trial is not a part of God's perfect and pleasing will. It's not sound theology, but it's commonly preached and known as the prosperity gospel. It's this teaching that, no, God is is for you, and so it ought to be blessing. And anything that's south of that, that that doesn't result in you getting a new car and a new jet, it, it must not be of God. And here's the reality. And that's why you're not going to hear prosperity gospel preachers. They're not going to preach on fasting. Why would you deny the flesh? God is the means by which you obtain the desires of your flesh. I mean, if you listen to the core of the teaching, it's about you and your best life now and your prosperity. That's why it's called the prosperity gospel. But the true gospel that we're going to see in the text today is very contrary to what would be taught in that way. What does the Bible say? Does God, we all, we've established that God has called them, that the Holy Spirit is sending them. So it should go exactly how a sovereign God wants it to go. That's what's going to happen. So we keep reading in the text. When they arrived at Salamis, they, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. Now you can remember his name. We're going to reference him later. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, 
We're going to stop there. No reading ahead. Okay, you need to get a picture to see where we're at. So where they started uh, on the screen is kind of near Antioch there in Jerusalem, be south of that. And so they're there, and they set sail to this island, Cyprus. And then they land, and they proclaim the gospel in the synagogue. And then they, it's about 100 miles to sail there. And then they spend another 108 miles, if they can walk a straight line, to go from one side of the island to the other proclaiming Jesus everywhere that they are going. And so it is, it is a trek, and they're proclaiming, and they land on the other side of the island after their long walk. And here's the deal. In verse 6, we continue. So they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, or translated, son of Jesus. He's a false prophet, and he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned this man, the proconsul, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear a word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that's what his meaning of his name, deceiver, all that, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, you've got to understand the characters here. There's multiple names, but really just a few people, the proconsul Sergius, he wants to hear from God. He's the one, he summoned Paul and Barnabas. They're on a missionary journey looking to tell everybody. Imagine like the change of pace where it's like, come on over here and tell me. Uh, and so, so he calls for them. And this is a leader, a person of power on his little cor corner of the island, but he has this hunger. There's just one small hiccup. And it's this, that he has an on-staff magician, this false prophet. This person, the, the name means son of Jesus. And he's doing these tricks. He's calling on the spirits. And so he is, he's the on-staff magician. And the sorcerer, this bar Jesus element, this person, he knows that his job is in jeopardy when Paul and Barnabas come to town. Because here's the reality. Who needs a sorcerer when you have Jesus? Because Jesus is greater than everything else. And so because of that, he starts to freak out and he starts to oppose them to their faces. Who, who needs a sorcerer when you have Jesus? At Iowa State, I went to school, studied ag business. Uh, there was our memorial union was like the big building right on campus. The food court was down below. And as a student in between classes, it was the place where you went to hang out. There's really one good set of doors that you went through to get in and out of the memorial union at Iowa State. And right when you got through those double doors, there was like this little hallway. But right in the middle is this huge zodiac sign. I don't know, Fobs, you were there. Like, I don't even know what's all on it, but I know it's the Zodiac. And then when they take you through orientation, what they tell you is you don't step on that. If you step on the Zodiac, like you're going to fail your next test. Your relationships are going to fail. And so I kid you not, there'll be like these busy times. You've got a double set of doors and people going in and out. And here's this big Zodiac and people are just going all the way around it, like to get in and out. I remember being like, I've got Jesus, and I'd love to go through that place, like during high traffic times, and just like strut right across the middle, like stop and like grind it in. 
Because here's the reality, like, if I fail my next test, it won't be because of Zodiac. It'll be because I didn't study, I assure you. Like, this thing has no power. And so when you have Jesus, you do not have a lucky sweatshirt. When you have Jesus, you, there is no need for uh, superstition, for luck. And there's certainly no need for an on-staff magician and sorcerer. And so this is an extreme threat. And the sorcerer knows his, his job is in jeopardy. So he opposes them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from faith. How he opposed them, it's unclear. But you know he brought it as a sorcerer, as a magician, seeking hard to, to keep the proconsul from faith. But Saul, in verse 9, who was also called Paul, which that name means small, humble, so here's Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. He looked intently at him. Again, power that's not coming from his presence or his name, but from the Holy Spirit, looks intently at the sorcerer and said, you son of the devil. Again, Matt was even talking, this guy's claiming son of Jesus as his name. Paul looks at him, no, you're son of the devil. You are an enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? He didn't back down in the least. Now Saul could have, Saul could have after a 100-mile boat ride, 108 miles on foot, camping out in the wilderness on this island in the Mediterranean, Saul could have gotten there and be like, really, Lord? Really? You called me for this? Son of the devil? Are you kidding me? Like if he thought that, that God's calling meant comfort, he would have every right to be a little bit frustrated. It's like we prayed, we fasted. There's people still praying and fasting. This is the first leg of the journey in this, really? But Paul looked past the opposition and saw an opportunity. He looked past the opposition, saw an opportunity to make God known. And again, you bring it full circle to, to what's taking place right now. There's a great deal of opposition, but what an opportunity. I think of a young guy in our church that was part of like a downsizing within the company. I'm not sure if it's COVID-related or what, but, but wife, kid, and then without a job. And just remember like interacting and what people didn't know at the time is baby number two is on the way. And you got a family to provide for. It would have been incredibly easy, I think, in that moment to get caught up with the level of opposition that was thrust upon him, to just be focused on that. But again, oftentimes in the language, when I met with this young guy, he's like, and I know God is doing something. I believe there's an opportunity here. I don't know what, but praying, never giving up, never taking his eyes off the Lord. And it's fun to see how a couple weeks ago, seeing that story come full circle. Yes, God is providing them. How he's providing for that family is moving him to be a, a, a youth pastor at a church up in Iowa. It's a story within our congregation that has recently taken place. What I'm saying is, dare I suggest that the opposition that 2020, COVID, and all that has been, if we could see past the opposition, we might see an opportunity. An opportunity to better love our neighbors and, and to reach out to them 
People perhaps we've lived alongside of for a while now, but given this occasion, we now have an opportunity for families that often operate isolated and independent of everybody else, an opportunity to, to cooperate together with other families to figure out school, the on-again, off-again that it is this fall, what an opportunity perhaps that opposition presents. An opportunity to ask others for, for help, for prayer, for families. One of the biggest things that for families to be a family is we just don't have any time. feel like I'm running my kid from sports and this and that and the other. Here's a pandemic. You're free. <laughs> Might we see past the opposition to the opportunity right now we have to prioritize family? I pray to God that my kids, when we get, when they are grown, that they would look back on this year and this pandemic and they'd say, praise God for that pandemic. Because that is when mom and dad, we got more of them than we ever had before. Our family grew closer together and closer to God. I want this thing to be an opportunity for my family and not just caught up in the opposition and, and continuing to fight against it. No, what might God have for us in this? And perhaps if we could see past the opposition, we might see the opportunity that God has for us to glorify him. And if we continue to get caught up in the opposition, oftentimes because we have a dangerous theology that does not allow for God to bring about conflict to bring about opposition, a theology that does not allow for those things to exist to advance his kingdom. And I would just want to warn you, with Scripture, that's a dangerous spot to be. When we do that, I feel like I can resonate with, with Peter, though, that, that in Matthew 16, in a moment where Jesus said this, as he's getting ready to go to the cross, for that time Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. That should never happen. You shouldn't suffer. No, <laughs> Jesus, you got this wrong. No, that's, no. And he, he pulls Jesus aside and I feel like we do that to God. I do that to God where it's like, God, you couldn't have had this. Really, God, you're going to allow me to, to get sick? This is a big week of ministry, and you're going to take me out of the game? God, really, you're going to ask this person to come and, and need finances right now? You know where we're at. Really, Lord? I find myself, like Peter in this, wanting to be like, God, are you sure? I don't. We need to have a talk, Lord. She's like, oh, you want to have a talk? If your theology does not allow for trials, for suffering. It's dangerous. Here's why. Verse 23, the next verse. But he turned and said, this is Jesus, said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You have to leave room for the sovereign hand of God who often uses opposition, often uses trials as an opportunity to advance the kingdom. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That is why we pray, we fast, we lean in and say, God, what would you have? 
Because it looks like this to me. God, would you help us understand what you're doing here? And the goal in life is not a life lived free of opposition, but it's a life lived filled with obedience. God's calling you to something, as we see in the text here. It's not a guarantee that we're not going to see opposition. It's no guarantee of comfort if the Lord is calling you there. But it is a guaranteed opportunity to walk in obedience. Say it like this, if you never meet Satan on the road of life, perhaps it's because you're heading the same direction. Our call is to rest in obedience, not results. And Todd Van Voorst, one of the elders here, when he really felt God calling to move him and his family to Columbia to see this church get started. Before moving to Columbia, I heard Todd say this, and it wrecked me. He said, I know God is calling us to Columbia, but he might be doing so just to slay us leaving room for the sovereign hand of God. This call on our lives is not a call or a promise of prosperity, but is an opportunity to obey and display Jesus Christ in life or in death. Anything that we receive north of hell is grace. God is gracious to us. And perhaps someone here like, Pastor, I don't know, that seems a little hard. I don't know, like, why God would allow bad things to happen to good people. That happened once, and Jesus volunteered. Reality that that God doesn't owe us anything, and so when we demand that, like, the God of the universe, who is accomplishing his sovereign will, part of his sovereign will is to protect us from any opposition, any trial. My wife pointed out, we were talking about this, she's like, and most of that's probably (laughs) self-inflicted. That God is obligated to protect us. No, God is going to glorify himself. And he's going to accomplish that. And so that may or may not be through opposition, but the opportunity to walk in obedience. And so we see that that Paul walking in obedience, fasting and prayed up and ready, receiving the power, declares from the Holy Spirit. And now in verse 11, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This is the the magician. He's been blinded. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And some of you are like, man, that's some real stuff. Really? He just gets blinded? And you're like, that's a little harsh. No, harsh? Like, might I suggest that it is in God's kindness that he just blinds the magician and doesn't kill him on the spot. If you look just back in chapter 12, Herod fails to acknowledge God. And immediately, in verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. He was eaten by worms and breathed his last. That's what happened in Acts 12, 23. It is God's grace that he lets this magician take another breath for another day in hopes that perhaps... He might repent and turn to God. And the proconsul believes he is astonished. Now, to be clear in our text, as you look at it, why is he astonished? Is it wasn't one of those things where he, he saw the magician get blind and he's like, hey, I'm with you guys. <laughs> he's off payroll. I'm done. I'm with you. Sees this wondrous sign and he's just amazed. He's like, okay, I'm in. It's not what the text says. In verse 12, 
says he saw what occurred, but the astonishment came from the teaching of the Lord. When the proconsul heard these guys proclaim, Jesus Christ took on flesh, came to earth, born in a manger, and he then raised up, lived in a perfect, obedient life, but was falsely accused, carried a cross, was nailed to it, placed next to thieves, and then placed in a tomb. But on the third day, he, he rose from the grave. He defeated death, not only saving us from our sin, but preparing a spot for us eternally. And not only that, God invites you to be a part of the work that you can have the peace, the joy, the love that comes from knowing him, and you can be a part of the plan. When he heard that proclaimed, he was amazed. It was the truth of the gospel that amazed him. And you can imagine as this guy puts his trust in Jesus that the scene, if you could just see him getting baptized and in the background, this magician that had all this authority and power being humbled and led by the hand. And I imagine like this missions trip, this is the first leg of the journey. I imagine there is a level of excitement. They're like, let's go, let's keep going. And so we see in verse 13, now, Paul and his companions set sail to Paphos and came to Persia. They're going 200 miles away by Mediterranean Sea. But it says this in verse 13, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. This is the John Mark I said, remember, in verse 5. And Luke referenced the author. He says, let's be clear, John left them. Paul clearly saw this as deserting them on the mission. And there's going to be a sharp argument that's coming later on, I think it's in chapter 15, over this exact event. And I think John Mark, he was there, he saw it all, but perhaps it was the motivation of comfort. <laughs> He's like, I think it's more comfortable back in Jerusalem. Like, y'all getting on a boat going that way, I'm going this way. Safety, security, we don't know what's out there. And so John, perhaps being motivated by security, sails on home. Which, if the goal is safety and security, man, he nailed it. But if the goal is to glorify God in life or in death, he should have been on that boat with these guys sailing onward, apart from the Lord clearly calling him home. Because here's the reality for us as we look at this text. Which boat you want to get on? Might I urge you, as we walk with the Holy Spirit, we pray and depend on Him. We walk in obedience. We can trust an unknown future to a known God. And so, obedience. And here's the thing. If you walk in obedience, three outcomes that I can think of. People are going to get saved. You might get slayed. Or you're going to plant seeds. But all of them end up winning. The only way to not win is to not obey. And what I mean is, is if you walk in obedience and you reach out and do what God's calling to you, Two, one of the sweetest things is people are going to surrender their life to Jesus, like the pro-council. What a win if that's the case. Another one, like Todd, you might get slayed to the glory of God and make him known even in that as you share in the sufferings of Jesus, storing up treasures in heaven. That would be a win. That would be a win. And so people are going to come to Jesus or I'm going to go meet Jesus. 
Or another one is like, it seems neutral. No, you're still at least planting seeds for God to water up and grow. And so it's winning either way you look at it as we walk in obedience. The question to you, Anthem, is like, what practically might God be calling you to? How might he be asking you to obey? And for some, just practically speaking, if you haven't read the Bible and prayed together as a family, or you can't think of the last time you've done a devotional together, I would start there in your own home. That that would be the thing, that you wouldn't go another week without making an attempt to lead your kids to where our hope is found. For others, I think as Matt pushes this surf push, guys, our church is continuing to grow. And if we're going to reach this city, it's not going to be through a few people doing everything. It's going to be all of God's people coming together to proclaim the gospel wherever we go. And it's going to be, we, we need help legitimately on those serve teams, loving those kiddos, leading out in our youth ministry. For others, again, prairie and fast, trusting that in that, as we see in the scripture, in this narrative, it was through praying and fasting that God gave clarity. Again, if you have not spent a day fasting and praying in the last few months, in line with what Jesus said, that this is going to be a pattern that you do, I would say, please, start there. Trusting that God continues to speak, continues to move, and lay things on the hearts of his people. And so would you please pray and fast. Facing a little temporary opposition, self-inflicted, is an opportunity to grow closer to God. In all of this, you have to assume that trials and hardships are something that God uses. James 1, they're doing something in us. And God's doing something through that. And through persecution, we see that the early church spreads to the ends of the earth. It's through the opposition of a sorcerer that the opportunity to exist to put God on display, and we're going to see that again and again throughout Acts. And the greatest evidence that God uses seemingly Bad things, from our perspective, seemingly bad things to accomplish great good, look no further than Jesus Christ, who died, his body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And there were some that missed it in the crowd. It's like, well, if he's truly the Son of God, this wouldn't happen. No, he's absolutely the Son of God. And so as we take communion, if, in light of that, his body broken, his blood shed. Remember that God seemingly uses opposition to accomplish greater good. And so as the band comes up, here's how I'd want us to think about communion today. Again, certainly, the, the bread that's on top of the cup, it should be on your chairs, representing the body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus in the cup. And as we take the, that, that today, remembering what Jesus has done, I would just want to invite you before you take that, that we start to reframe how we begin to think about trials, that we put aside that tendency that we see in Peter, like, surely not, God. And we stop kind of bucking against the, the, the 2020 and all those things there. And would you guys, your individual trials that you have, would you begin to turn a corner, even as we take communion today, to thank God for them? Not just ask for strength to endure them, but would you 
in line with scripture, thank God for the opportunity to share in the suffering of Jesus. And we get this 2 Corinthians 4, says it like this, it's on the screen. I'm gonna leave this up for you guys to meditate on. It's gonna remind you of some uh, 90s worship song from, uh, but it says, we are afflicted in every way, crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What he's saying is because of being pressed, because we're not going to be crushed. We're going to be persecuted, but not leaving. We may be struck down, but we can't be destroyed. He's saying when that happens, we have the opportunity to declare the gospel, not simply with just our words, but in our actions as we manifest physically what Jesus went through. We get to put the gospel on display. And so would you, in your heart now, be able to thank God for the trial and say, Lord, what are you doing with this? And lean into it and see it as an opportunity of which it is to proclaim the gospel by how we suffer and suffer well. So as you take communion this morning, would you thank God and with the level of expectancy given his sovereignty to work it out for his glory, would you trust him as we remember that we can trust him as we remember what Jesus Christ has done. So when you're ready, take communion. The band's gonna lead us in worship.